What we're going to look at this morning is motives. So we're going to get into motives. And uh, everything stands or falls on our motives. Everything. I mean, you can have two people doing the same identical thing. One's accepted by God. The other one's rejected by God because of the motives. It's not the acts themselves. It's the motives that's behind the acts. And actually, this message has been a, a long time brewing in me until I felt uh, that I could put it all together and share it. I've been for a, a little bit reading in the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. Just, you know, I have my time where I study and especially, uh, you know, very extensive in the, with the podcast and that. But, you know, when I'm going through and just reading the, the Bible, I'll go and something will stick out and then I'll, you know, drop everything and look at that and dig into it to understand, you know, something that's there. And, and uh, through this, looking at the, the Mosaic Law, um, I got to say I've, I have felt something like I've never felt it before. I am so thankful to be saved by grace. I mean, I'm not kidding. I've, I've looking at the law. <coughs> excuse me. One thing after another. I mean, just rule upon rule. And I know they're all there trying to point to Jesus. That's the ultimate reason for it. But what bondage? What misery? What? I mean, if you're a priest, I mean, to have to try and think of every single thing. And if you don't do it right, then you could be zapped. You know? I mean, it's serious stuff. I mean. It's, it's serious. It's scary really looking at that. And I'm so glad I don't have to memorize all these laws and know what to do. And if I come across a dead body or a dead bone, I'm digging a well and then there's a dead bone there. I'm unclean now and I got to go through this ritual. And if I don't get myself clean, then I can be rejected by the people because I didn't make myself clean because I didn't honor God in, in the whole process of it. I mean, it's like this stuff is just, out, uh, just astounding. Why did he give it that? Why did he give the Israelites that? Well, really, there's two reasons for it. The first one is, is extremely foundational. It is to reveal to Israel that God is holy and that he is not like any of the pagan gods. He's not like the idols that, that, that Israel used to worship in Egypt and the Canaanites worshipped and all the other people. It was to show that God is totally other, that he is holy, and he demands that his people be holy. But the other reason is to show us that we were absolutely helpless to change ourselves, that we are evil to the core of our being, and we need a Savior. And so it exposed the sinfulness of mankind. And that's what... Paul brings out that it was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ because it had to expose the reality of our sin before we could really understand that we were sinners in need of a Savior. When we begin to look at the idea of, of motives here, and we're going to get into uh, Matthew 23 for a little bit, and we're going to look at the negative before we start looking at the positive, but um, some very interesting stuff that comes out here. And when you look at this, actually, Matthew chapter 22 and 23 is one event that's going on. And we'll get into 22 towards the end of the message. And, and uh, it leads into what's going on here in Matthew 23. And uh, Jesus, we're told right at the beginning, that he is teaching his disciples and the multitude, the crowd. So 
the teaching he's giving is not just for the disciples. It's for anybody. Any, everybody that is hearing him, these words for, were for them. And what was going to take place was for them to hear to understand some truths. And the truths he's going to share are really challenging truths. And he's going to do some serious rebuking of the Pharisees. But you know what? This was the love of God. It was love to confront them. It was love to expose what was inside of them that they might, if they so wanted to, if they so desired, that they could see the truth and come to salvation and be saved instead of being bound in this legalistic religion that was, was just, just had corrupted them because they didn't understand even what God was wanting to do in that. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus contrasts the Pharisees with true discipleship. And I'm not going to get into that. I'll just touch on a couple points, but something very different there in what the Pharisees did and what the Pharisees were doing. And basically, Jesus was saying, that's not, that's not what I'm giving you. What the Pharisees are is a perversion of what I brought, even through the law. It's a perversion of it. Don't do that. And he even went so far to say on how the uh, Pharisees uh, that we were to listen to them, or that the Jews of that time were to listen to what they taught when they taught the Word of God, and they taught the law and how to, how to perform the, the rituals and everything else accordingly. But uh, he says, don't do what they do because they're hypocrites, because they say one thing and they do another thing. So don't look at their lives because their lives are, 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 are not right with me. But at least when they present the Word of God, the Word of God is true. And so I think that's a, a good standard for us even now, is the standard of our Christianity is not each other, it's Jesus. And, you know, I have seen this happen so many times, I'm not going to get into it, I'll just touch on it briefly, but I've seen times where, where you've had a, a leader in the church, a, you know, pastor, denominational leader, whatever, some big name or whatever, they, they're found out to be in sin, and you know what happens? Then you have all these people leave and forsake God, never end up back in church again. You know what happened was they had their eyes on a man, not on Jesus. And so when the man fell, their whole religion fell because it was based upon a man, not upon a relationship with Christ. And so Jesus tells the multitude, he says, the Pharisees, understand what's going on here. You have all these Pharisees here. The Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law were antagonizing Jesus in chapter 22. They were attacking him. And so now he's going to the multitude, and he says, don't listen, don't do what they do, they're hypocrites. And he says, they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's soldiers, but they are not willing to lift a finger, a single finger to move them. So they had all these laws on top of laws on top of laws, laws that were never given by God, these, these things that they were to do to supposedly be righteous, they made it heavier and heavier and heavier and made it harder and harder for people to see who this God really was. He said, everything they do, they do to be seen of people. The clothes they wear, right? They wore special religious clothes so that when they walked around, everybody knew, that's a Pharisee. And they demanded that people get out of their way and revere them and, you know, in their arrogance and pride because they thought they were something special. And so they had all this, 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 garbage inside of them and they couldn't even see it they wanted the best seats they wanted to whenever there was a, a marriage whether it was a, or, or just some feast or whatever they wanted the best seats they wanted to be recognized as the most important people in attendance 
And they wanted to have special titles given to them. They wanted to be called rabbi and father and all these other things because they wanted people to acknowledge who they were. But he says, you're not to be like that. And then he says, right smack dab in the middle of this, verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. He says, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be what they are. Don't, don't model your life after them because they're arrogant, they're selfish, they're self-willed, they're in rebellion against me. Don't act like them. Here's what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to be a servant. I'm calling you to be not like them, but to be like Jesus, right? When we come to verses 13 through 33, what we have here is eight woes. And I guarantee you the Pharisees and the Sadducees understood what Jesus was saying. I guarantee you. That word woe is a prophetic word of judgment. It's used in the Old Testament. I think Isaiah went and used nine woes, that there's nine woes in the book of Isaiah. They are terrifying words. And for Jesus to stand up and say, woe unto you, <clears throat> was a prophetic act denouncing them and proclaiming judgment on them if they don't repent. They knew what Jesus was doing. And they realized that here was Jesus in his prophetic office, so they didn't acknowledge that, but here was Jesus in his prophetic office confronting them about the reality of their lives. I'm going to touch on these eight things that he confronts them with. And you know, when we look at these eight things, the first thing we have to understand is in themselves they are all right. It's not that they were doing wrong. It doesn't say that they were out there, you know, robbing banks or anything like that. They were praying. They were fasting. They were doing all these things, but their motive was wrong, so everything they did was wrong. And so we have to understand the motive is so important. Verse 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter and will not let those enter who are trying to. Well, basically, I mean, if we might say it like this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had very, very strong convictions, very strong beliefs, but they were wrong. I mean, you can believe as strongly as you want in what you believe in, but if it's a lie, it's still a lie. It's irrelevant how, how strongly you believe in it because somebody believes in something with everything within them doesn't mean that what they're believing is true. And so it's not just the belief itself, it's whether or not we are believing what is true and in the one who is true. And so they were self-deceived, and they didn't even want to acknowledge that. They weren't even open to it. In verse 14, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. And now, this is terrifying because we're called to pray. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. I mean, prayer is to be an, an integral part of the Christian life. If you're not a person that's in prayer, I question your Christianity. I mean, I'm serious about that. This isn't an option. Prayer is vital to the Christian life and to their survival. They prayed. But what they do? They prayed to be seen to people. Their motive was wrong. So how can our motive be wrong? I mean, we can pray, God, I'm praying because I want something from you, and I'm praying because I want this from you, and that's the only reason why I'm doing it, because when I get what I want, then I'm not going to pray that much because I'm going to do my own thing then. Right? Isn't that how people do it all the time? They want to earn something from God, and so they offer up the prayers because they want something from Him. They don't want Him. They want 
what he has to give, but they don't want him. And so here their whole motives were wrong. They were greedy. They were self-righteous. They were hypocrites, and they used their prayers as a means to justify, look at I'm a Christian. Do you, know how, do you know how many times I've heard over all my years of ministry? I've been in ministry over 40 years. And, and do you realize how many times I've heard people go and justify saying, I love God, but they're living in fornication? Oh, I love God. I mean, I was preaching at this one church, and I, afterwards I went up and started ministering to this guy that I knew was a drug addict. And, you know, here's a hardcore heroin addict. I love Jesus. He got fuming mad at me when I said he didn't. Because you have no evidence of loving God in your life. So people want to think, well, I love God. I have sentimental feelings for me, so I'm, for him, so I must be right. But the life wasn't right, so nothing else was right. The motives were wrong, and there was no reason then to do what was pleasing to God. Woe to you, teachers of the law, in verse 15, and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. When he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Isn't that interesting? They were evangelistic. Right? Evangelistic and going to hell. So much so, he says, you're going to receive the greater damnation. I mean, some terrifying stuff there. So they didn't go to make disciples of the prostitutes and tax collectors. All they had was condemnation for them. But if there was somebody of a prominent family or a particular situation and they thought this would be a great disciple, they'd go over land and see to make this one a disciple, to make them become one of them and to believe what they believe. So Paul was taken up in that. Saul was his, his Hebrew name. Saul was taken up. He was taught by Gamaliel, the best of the best of that time. Some even say that he was second in the Sanhedrin under the high priest. And so here Paul is taught by the best that there is. And yet he's so wrong with God. So wrong with God. And so evangelistic, yet making the people twofold more disciples of hell. Why? Because as they're discipling them in lies, they're believing it's true, and the deception becomes all the greater because they believe it's true when it's really a lie. Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. I mean, and Jesus takes quite a few verses in this particular thing. I'm not going to take the time to get deep into it. Um, God is a covenant-making and keeping God. And so he calls us to be people that make covenant, covenant with him first and foremost, and then write covenants with each other. And when we make a covenant, God holds us to that. We are guilty before God if we become covenant breakers. That's more serious than people understand. I mean, God really holds covenants extremely important. And so here they made this whole flippant type of thing of, of covenants. Well, if I go and I make an oath with somebody, but it's on this thing, well, that really didn't mean anything, so I don't have to hold to it. But if I would have done it on that, well, then it would have really meant what I said. And they're just doing this doublespeak, trying to get around the aspect of obligations and obeying what they, they or, or fulfilling what they had promised on oath. And so he rebukes them. He says, you're hypocrites. You're just trying to find some way around the responsibility you're to have to be faithful to the promises you make. And then in verse 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spice, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, what's going on here is the legalism of the Pharisees had gone beyond what the law had said of tithing. Now, I'm not your pastor, so I can say some things that Pastor Jeff can say, all right? You should be tithing. If you're not tithing, there's something wrong with your spiritual life, okay? Period. Bible teaches it. So if you're not tithing, what's the motive behind you're not tithing? What's the motive? I mean, there's a motive behind it. You understand? There's a motive behind it. But we can tithe for totally wrong purposes, which is what the Pharisees were doing. They were so fastidious with this that they would even tithe upon the, the uh, herbs that they grew in their garden. Well, i got to give 10% of that and 10% of this. And they took it way out of whack beyond everything. But they thought they were right with God because they gave tithes. Tithes have nothing to do with earning something with God. When you got the lying preachers out there that preach a prosperity gospel, then they end up saying you should put your seed money. You know what? They never give seed money. I've never gotten anything from any of them, so they've never invested in my ministry. But, uh, you know, they, they say you should give seed money to them so now they can have their second or third jet. I'm not kidding. I mean, these are, are the reality of what's going on with these big names that people keep giving them money. And so what do they do? They basically manipulate you, says you want God's blessing, you give money to us and we'll know that God and God will bless you as a result of it well there's no blessing in it because the motive is wrong you're trying to buy God you've made God somebody that's for sale and you're wanting to purchase something from him God you you can't earn him you can't you don't deserve him it's a gift and so tithing is to be something out of total gratitude that's all it is gratitude thank you because where would you be right now where what the money you have right now where would it be if you were still in the world I mean, you understand what it would be? He rescued you, and he is so kind that he only asked the 10%. He could ask 100%, and he would deserve it. And you should be giving from your gross, not your net. The government takes from your gross. Why should you give God less? Right? It's just some simple stuff here. I think it's something that's important. It's a heart issue. So if you're not tithing, you need to get on your knees and say, God, why aren't I tithing? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my faith? And you know what I've seen happen so many times? People try and take the word of God and twist it for selfish reasons so they don't have to tithe. There's a motive behind all that. There's a reason for it. And so what they do, they neglected godly character because they focus so much upon the legalistic things. In this case, it was tithing. In verses 25 and 27, you have the, the sixth and seventh woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. And so you have here the, a similar thought. That's going on. You are corrupt on the inside. You make yourself pretty on the outside. You have these outward actions that make it look like everything's okay, but inside you are corrupt. You are corrupt, and you're not even willing to see the depth of corruption in you that I might change you. And so what's more important <clears throat> to God, what we do or what we are? It's always what we are. Because if we are changed on the inside, what comes out of us will be changed as well. But if we just do outwardly things and make ourselves look good, then the inside is not changed. We are still corrupt. 
And, you know, it's easy to do the Christian thing, to learn the culture of Christianity, to go through the motions. It's an easy thing to do. We can have the, the, the language of the church and speak that and do all the right things and be so wrong. I mean, how many people have been in leadership positions, pastors, Sunday school teachers, and so on, and they're in sexual sin? And it's astounding. You know, they're doing, they, they are considered somebody important in the church, a deacon, a whatever, and yet their life is full of corruption. And they refuse to see because they're so blinded by the external, they do not see the internal. And they don't comprehend how ugly the internal is because they've not really let Jesus get in there and do that work. The eighth one is, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And then they went on, Jesus went on to say, and you say you wouldn't be like those of your own uh, families in the past. You wouldn't be like them and kill the prophets. You would do it differently. And Jesus exposed their heart that they would actually have all the judgments of all the martyrs and all the persecution fall upon them because they themselves would do the most uh, heinous crime that has ever been done to murder God incarnate. And yet, you come to the end of this chapter and you hear Jesus say this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. The heart of God yearning for them to come yearning he rebuked them so strongly spoke woes over them because he loved them because they did not hear anything else he had to say so maybe in the midst of a strong rebuke he might listen they might listen he says how often I wanted to gather you together as a mother hen her chicks but here's the important thought there. He says, but you were not willing. They were not predestined to go to hell. They made the choice to go to hell. They made the choice. They were not willing to give up their self-righteousness, their dead religion. They were not willing. And so what they do, they continued in what they were doing because that's what they understood and refused to do otherwise. So now we have this problem it's a problem of sin. That's one of the things in the Mosaic Law there, that it shows again and again and again in all these various ways the reality of what sin is and how absolutely, utterly evil. I mean, again and again, all the law, the ritual, is ultimately revealing the problem. It's revealing the problem that there's this terrible thing inside of mankind that mankind can't see. It's in all of our hearts. It's in all of our wills. And so we need something that was a promise in the Old Testament. It comes in Jeremiah and Isaiah. But a promise that is a New Testament promise is, I will give them a new heart and a new mind. In essence, God is saying, I'm going to go in and take the corrupt hearts. Those hearts are so pharisaical. And I'll give you a new heart and a new mind so that you love differently and you think differently and therefore you will act differently. 
And so in Psalms 24, verse 3, says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Who is given the right and the privilege to come before God? Now, from a natural standpoint, okay, or let's say a ritual standpoint, only the priests, not even the Levites, only the priests in the Old Testament were allowed to approach God. And only the high priest could once a year go into the most holy place and approach him. And he had to do it by blood through all these sacrifices. The, the day that, that the high priest went into the most holy place was probably the most grueling day of the year for any priest because he had to do all the sacrifices. And there's a whole slew of them. And he had to do them by himself. Nobody could help. But he's talking about something greater here, not just as a priest going in and being able to stand before the altar because they have washed themselves and made themselves clean according to the rituals and have the right clothes on and everything else. He's talking about something different, about entering into the place of relationship with God, the place of his presence, the place of his nearness. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in that holy place? Who is able to look upon him in essence and see him and be able to approach him? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Clean hands. What does that signify? It signifies what we do and what we touch. We have used our hands for evil. You understand? Our hands have done evil. The motions of sin have been in it in one way or the other. And yet now he's coming to us as you want to ascend the hill of the Lord. You want to stand in my holy place. You need clean hands. Your hands are filthy. Your hands are stained with blood. They're stained with bitterness and hate and prejudice. It's stained with abuse and all whatever else comes out of the things that we do. He says, you need clean hands, and I, I'm the only one who can give you clean hands. I'm the only one who can do that. I'm the only one who has the atonement that is powerful enough to cleanse from sin. Because the, lambs of, because the blood of bulls and of goats wasn't enough, as Paul taught in the book of Hebrews. And so David, I know most all of you know this really well, Psalms 51. David had hardened himself in sin and thought he was right with God until Nathan the prophet came and confronted the man. And when Nathan confronted him, he saw the reality of his sin. He saw the evil of it. He saw what it would produce in his life. And in verse 10, he had only one thing that he could say there. It says, create me a new heart. Create me a new heart. Create me a right spirit, a steadfast spirit that will be faithful to you. He understood the absolute necessity of this, of this new heart of clean hands and a pure heart. He understood the absolute necessity of it, but he understood that it could not come from him, that he couldn't muster it up, that it couldn't come through the law. Even David, under the law, knew that the law could not meet the need that he had because of the sin that he committed, that he needed something more. He needed the mercy and kindness and atonement of God himself. A pure heart is what we love and desire. And you know, we have, it's the evidence in all of our lives, okay? It's evidence in all of our lives. We have loved what has been evil. That's just the reality. That's, what we, that's our default. That's what we do. 
guaranteed you can love somebody you should not love. But what does the world say? Well, if it's love, it must be right. That's an insane, ridiculous statement. We can love what is evil. To love what is right, we need a new heart that's going to love differently, that's not going to love like we loved in the past, that's going to love totally different, where we are delivered from our hypocrisy and double standard and wanting to look good on the outside, but inside we're all corruption. And so what Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They will see him who will ascend the hill of the Lord. The pure heart. But how corrupt is our heart? And you know, here's the problem we have, is that we can not even see the corruption in our heart as Christians unless we want to see it. And I'm not talking about this morbid introspection that we can just, you know, just so be so brutal to ourselves and, and the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with it. That's what we're doing or allowing hell to do. There's a right way to examine ourselves. There's a right way to look at it. There's a right way to keep a heart that is so tender towards God that when our heart is not what it should be, that we are sensitive and we will let him whisper in our ear. He shouted at the Pharisees that he couldn't hear. The volume is not what's important. It's the receptivity of the heart. It's the willingness to hear from God. It's the willingness to be encouraged by him or reproved by him. And then the necessity of obedience to follow. Then he spoke of an idolater. He says, you can't be an idolater and, and approach the Lord. You can't stand in his holy place if there's idolatry in your heart. And what is idolatry? It is wrong affections. It's affections that are wrongly put upon anything, whether it be a graven image that's a God, whether it's an individual, whether it's money, whether it's position, power, whatever it is, it is our affections wrongly placed upon something that becomes idolatrous to us then. We look to that thing, we think that's what we need, we think that's what will satisfy us or make us happy or give us what we think we're lacking. We make this idol of something. And church, this is easy for us to do. It's easy for us to do. And then when we start allowing that in our life, we don't realize how our heart is being corrupted. It's no longer pure. It's becoming double-minded. It's looking after two different things. We want God, but then we want this thing, this person, this, this possession, whatever it is. And we seek after that, thinking that's going to satisfy us. And who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who don't swear by what is false. Make this real simple. Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who are lovers of the truth. And you know what happens when we're lovers of the truth? The truth is going to confront the lies in us. It's going to confront the lies in us. And if we shut that down, if we stop it, then we stop the work God wants to do in our life no different than the Pharisees did. We stop the work because we don't want to respond to the proof he's bringing, the correction, because we want to, for some reason, hold on to this idolatrous love, this idolatrous desire, and the truth then becomes something we don't really want to hear because it's going to confront us about what we don't want to give up. And so I guarantee you, every one of the Pharisees that heard Jesus, heard his rebuke, they were not happy with him because they didn't want to hear what he had to say and do what he was telling them. He didn't, they didn't want that. In verse 5, we are told that these are the ones who receive the blessing from the Lord. And I like this, the vindication from his God. Vindication. The devil's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us, we're told, day and night. 
accusing us. You know what he loves to do? He loves to point out the reality of your sin, of what you did in the past, right? Look what you did. Look what you did. Look what you did. He never, never brings you to the cross, never shows the reality of the atonement and that that has been washed away because you went and asked forgiveness. He just shows you what you did. Look at what you are. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Accuses, accuses. But if we will do this thing that's right here, what David is, is speaking about in this psalm, if we will do it, God will vindicate us. When we stand before him, his vindication will be there. He says, why should I let this one into my heaven? And Jesus will say, because I am his savior. His blood, my blood has washed him. He belongs to me. Vindication at that moment that we will see that began in this world because we started walking with him and we wanted to walk with him in truth and no place for a double standard, no place for hypocrisy. As time has gone on in my own Christian life, I've become more and more aware of the importance of the first commandment, of the greatest commandment. I'm sorry to say that in, in times past I could... You know, it was there, it was a truth, you know, and not that I rejected the truth, I loved the truth, but it was just one among many of the truths, and I didn't see it for what it really is. You see, there's a remedy to this duplicity, there's a remedy to the hypocrisy, and it's a single heart focused on him, loving him. And so the greatest commandment, within the greatest commandment, is everything, and I mean everything, we need to live the victorious Christian life. Everything. It's not something we add to our life. It is what is to define our life. And if our life is defined by the greatest commandment, there will be no hypocrisy in us. There'll be no impure motives. There'll be nothing wrong contrary to what God would have because that first and greatest commandment is first and greatest and called that for a reason. And it is serious that we understand it and not just make it a little addition to our life, but we become people that are saying, God, this must define me. This must define me. I don't want this to be a part of my life. I want it to be the fullness and the completeness of my life. And so in Matthew 22, which is where the whole thing started in Matthew 23, you understand it started in, in, in Matthew 22, and you had Pharisees and Sadducees coming and testing him, and, you know, I mean, the Sadducees, ridiculous question. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. You know, but Jesus just, you know, so simply just put him down, you know, and he didn't put them down like degrading them, but just silence them, just silence them. I mean, they couldn't stand against his wisdom. And so finally, this teacher of the law, and understand what the teacher of the law is. They're in your translation, they might call them lawyer. They might be called scribe. They're basically all, they're all the same thing. And what they are is they were people that were experts. They studied the Mosaic law. They studied the Pentateuch. They studied then the rabbinical teaching on it. To this point, though, it wasn't written down. It was still oral tradition, they called it. But they studied it. They looked at it. And they went and, and designed everything in their life around looking at that. So they were experts in that. So you have this man that's an expert in the law trying to trip Jesus up for a reason to have him tried and executed. 
And so he asks a simple question. Verses 35 and 36, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, you know, I would think that that is going to be pretty simple, you know, so, but yet if he could get something else, if he could get from Jesus something different, then he could begin to label him as a heretic, as an idolater, promoting false religions, false beliefs, whatever. So, I mean, he was serious about this. Whether he knew that Jesus would give a right answer or not, I don't know. If he really knew that Jesus was going to give a right answer, he might not have asked the question. But nonetheless, the question was asked. And so Jesus answered in verses 37 and 38, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now let's just look at this for a moment. The first commandment. Why is it the first commandment? Because it is the first commandment in preeminence. Not in order, but in preeminence. What do I mean by preeminence? It is above every command. Every single command. It's not the first. Deuteronomy is where it first comes out to love the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6.5. So that was the first time it is mentioned. But yet it was the highest thing that God called mankind to, even in the garden with Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve lived out that, that, that command naturally because there was no sin in them. The problem living that command happens always because of sin. It's sin that keeps us from living that out to the fullest. And so this is the first command in preeminence. It is the first in purpose of mankind's creation. We were created to love him. We were created to love him with everything. We were not created to love him partially or even 90%. We were created to love him supremely above everything, above everyone, above all of creation, above people. We were to love him first. And yet, what do we have? Constantly this attack against us to try and keep us from loving him first. To have other purposes, other loves, other things in our life that distract us and take us away. This first commandment is first in importance. It is the most important command. <clears throat> and it is the fountain from which all other commands come out of. You understand, if you break this first command, you break every command. And if you are to live out the other commands, it can only be lived out by living out the first command. It is greatest or first in importance. It is first in antiquity. It was before all things because that perfect infinite love within the Godhead was there. When angelic beings were created, that was something that was in them. It was what they were. Sin happened because ultimately they rebelled against that. And so you have this whole host of, of, of angels that are now demons because they forsook their first place of loving God supremely to love themselves. This commandment is first in necessity. We need it more than we can even imagine. We need it more than anything else to love him, to love him. 
We need to have that, the burning desire, the burning passion, the thing that defines our life. If it defines our life, it will define our families. If it defines our families, it will define the children and grandchildren. It will reach all kinds of people because they will see the reality of what it is to love God, and they will see the beauty of what that relationship is. Because if we are doing this right, this face should be so beautiful that the world's looking at says, what is it that you got? Why do you have a marriage that's so good? Why is it you have children that walk with God? Why is it you have all this going on in your life? Because they should be seeing the reality of God's blessing upon those who can ascend the hill of the Lord, those who have clean hands and a pure heart. They should see the blessing of God upon... I'm not talking about money here. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with the relationship. It has to do with our relationship with him and relationship with each other and what he does through that. We desperately need to love him supremely. Every problem we have, I want you to hear this, every problem we have with each other is because we break that command. When you have problems in your marriage, the foundation of that problem is you are not loving God like you should. If you love God like you should, you wouldn't have that problem in the marriage. Because you know what would happen? God would change you. And when he changes you, he'll change the marriage. Always, it's always that problem right there. The second commandment, I'll touch on it just for a moment in a little bit, but that second commandment can only be lived out when the first commandment is the priority of our life. It's when we are pursuing the first command that the second command will have the force of the first command to do it. The power, the anointing, the blessing of God to be able to love others like we should. The first commandment is first in fulfillment. It is the only way we can know God and enjoy God. Now, none of us came to Jesus for noble purposes. None of us. We all came selfishly because that's what we were. Okay, you can't come to Christ other than what you are. You come in your sin. You come in the insanity of your life. You come with all the baggage and all the, the stuff. You come selfishly. But that's not where God wants to leave you. He will take you in that condition, but that's what grace is all about. Not just saving you, but transforming you. To move you from this person that is utterly selfish, that everything is about me and my wants and my happiness and my hurts and my pains and my struggles, moving us away from that to everything is about knowing him and loving him and serving him and adoring him and finding my fulfillment and my joy and my peace, everything I need, finding it in him. It's the only way we can know God. Those who really want to love him will know him because he will reveal himself to them. Those who really don't want to know him will not love him or love him much because it's not important to them. You know, they have all these other idols in their life, all these other little gods in their life that's defining them. That first command is not just the first command. It is the greatest command. Understand, Jesus wasn't babbling here. He just didn't spout something off because it sounded nice. He was giving us absolute truth. The truth in flesh and blood was giving us truth. And the truth here <clears throat> was that the command to love him is the first commandment and it's the greatest. There is no commandment that is greater. No commandment that is greater. And so there, if there's no commandment that is greater, there's nothing greater that you can do in your life than to learn how to love him. 
and to bring your life under the rule of God so that you love him supremely, that you go from a place where this love is so small because the love of self is so big and you start learning how to bring down the love of self and you start seeing the love of God increase more and more in your life and you start seeing the benefits and the joy and the power and the victory that is in loving God. Do you know so often we want to overcome the devil by putting on some boxing gloves and going a few rounds with him? Do you know how victory comes? Falling in love with Jesus. Why do we make it so hard? Why do we complicate this? He's not giving us something complicated here. Here's the greatest commandment. Love me supremely. Love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love me with everything that is within you. And if you will do that, then everything else will begin to find its proper place. That second commandment will flow out of loving God supremely. It's not like a piece of pie that we only got so much love. And if you start dividing it up and you give some to God, then you only got some to give to other people. It doesn't work like that. Give God the whole pie and he'll give you some more. I mean, there's no want of it. What you need is in him. And through him, he will give you everything you rightly need to be and do what you should be and do. But if you don't love him supremely, then you will not have the grace and the power to be and do what you should be and do. This commandment is greatest in being, in its very nature, in its character, in its dignity, in its excellency. When you think of this, God took us miserable sinners and brought excellency into our life, not because of who we are of ourselves, but merely because we begin to take our affection from self and the world and sin and begin to put it upon him. And this life starts coming out, this life of excellency, this life that is superior. And I'm not saying superior in the sense that we're better than anybody else, but it's this life that's not normal of this world. It becomes a supernatural life that comes through the grace of God returning to what we were created to be. It is greatest, the greatest commandment in what it accomplishes in our life. In other words, it is greatest in sufficiency because it is able to take unholy people and make them holy. Do you understand? Here's where holiness really comes from, loving God. The more you love him, the more you want to please him. The more you love him, the more you want your life to line up with him. Get that love hotter than what it is, you'll have the motivation to crucify sin. You'll have the motivation to want to walk holy. It's not legalism then, you understand? Legalism is the absence of love for God. It's love of self. Real relationship with God is loving him. And because you love him, you want to be near him. And you know that sin breaks his heart, so you want sin out of your life. You don't want anything in your life that will break the heart of God. The problem we have is we don't love him or love him like we should. What are you struggling with in your life right now? The remedy is just that simple. You are not loving him like you should, and if you love him like you should, then those sins will begin to fall off. What do you watch with your eyes? If you watch what shouldn't be, what is forbidden, it's because your heart is in the wrong place. You're loving what is evil. But if you love what is true, you don't want your eyes to look at anything that it ought not to look at. You don't want anything. You don't want that corruption because you have tasted of the goodness and kindness and beauty of God. And all you want is more of it. You want more of it because your understanding 
what he is offering us. Then Jesus said in verse 39, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Ever have a hard time loving somebody? I think it would be safe to say that every person in this room would have to say yes. It's just the reality. It's what we have as human beings. It's the reality of our fallen nature. And the only way we can go beyond that is we have to have that revolution on the inside of us that starts changing us, that starts transforming us so that we can love others because we're loving Him. And because we're loving Him, we can start loving others in ways we never thought we could love before. And so we're seeing this God that is so beautiful that is now giving us the ability to love those who we consider unlovable, those who are hard to love, those that we can't get near because we don't like whatever it is about them. But now we're beginning to love like Jesus. We will only love others rightly when we love God supremely. Is if, you want, if you understood that simple little thing there, every time you find your relationship breaking down with other people, they would bring you to your knees and say, God, forgive me for this, for this hard heart. Forgive me for my inability to love beyond what, is just what, I'm, what I can do. God, help me to love. I don't know how to love. Help me to love you that that love might change me, that I can love others like I should. It is the answer. It is the answer to help us to love correctly. <coughs> And then Jesus made this statement that is just interesting. In verse 40, he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What's he saying is that every law in the Old Testament and every law in the New Testament, the law of grace, is fulfilled through those two commandments. Every law, whatever it is, it's fulfilled in them. So the duty of all believers can only be done by loving God. <clears throat> so I'll be starting very shortly the discipleship. First book they'll be, we'll be going through is going to be uh, A.W. Tozer's Pursuit of God. And in that book he has an interesting analogy that he makes. And I'll just have to give it to you in my own words. You can read it for those of you that's in the in the discipleship, you'll read it uh, soon. But there's this family, this group of people that go into the mountains to have vacation. <clears throat> and they're enjoying the mountains. They're seeing the beauty of the mountains, the majesty, the splendor, their heights and the snow-capped mountains. And, and they're fishing in the streams and the lakes. And they're enjoying the wonder and the beauty of this creation. And everything is just wonderful until a little three-year-old girl goes missing and all of a sudden those mountains are not pretty anymore they're terrifying they're terrible those rivers and lakes now are the potential of the death and and ruin of that little child and of the family why did everything change because the value of that child is greater than the value of mountains and streams and rivers you understand there's a principle here that's really important. 
We are to love according to the excellency, according to what something is. There's a right way to love the creation God has given us. But the creation God has given us does not compare to the creation of people. Because we were created in the image of God. Because of that, there's greater value. And people should have more love from us than what we would have of the beauty of creation. But how much more is this now with God, whose excellency is infinitely beyond that of a three-year-old child? Our love and devotion to Him should be, should be that much different. The difference between my love for this world and the love for this child should be even greater from the love of the child to my love of God. But what is it? It's so easy to be fixed upon the natural and to love people like we should ultimately be loving God because we can see them and touch them. Where it's by faith that we touch God. And it's by faith that we experience Him. And the experience is real. It is real. It's not make-believe. But we have to understand who it is that's calling us to this place of loving Him. Who's calling us to say, this is the greatest commandment. This is the greatest commandment. This is the first commandment. This is the first thing I call you to do. This is the greatest thing that you can do in your life. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more excellent. There's nothing more beautiful than you can do than what it is to learn how to love me. And that it was not egotistical on the part of God. It is God saying, I know what you need because I created you. And if you are to be who you should be, and if you want the joy and peace and fulfillment that I offer my creatures, it comes solely through living out this first and greatest commandment. Just that simple. Just that hard. Now Jesus went and he ramped things up. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, it's one thing, and it's noble to love others as we want to be loved. If we did that, you know what, husbands, you'd be some awesome husbands. Wives, you'd be some awesome wives, all right? I mean, I'm just being honest with you. The problem we have is we're not willing to love people like we really want to be loved. But Jesus took this father. He says, okay, that was the, the, the second commandment. I've got a greater command. I've got something now greater than the second command. I'm superseding it because now I want you to love like I've loved you. Selflessly, sacrificially, beyond even the place of wanting my own needs and happiness met so that I can meet the needs of others. I just finished reading a book on on seven Pentecostal, uh, uh, early Pentecostals in the early Pentecostal movement from England. So they were all English, and, uh, you know, some of them were just radical. I mean, just it's like some of them had their place in really bringing theology to the Pentecostal church. But the last one, this man was just, he was just a wild man. I mean, the guy was wild. He, you know, he takes, he goes into the Congo, and, you know, the things that he's doing you know, I'm trying to reach people, and you look at this, you see a love that has to burn in a person so hot that willing to deal with just mosquitoes like you and I can't comprehend, okay? When I read that, I'm going, God, I don't know if I love you more. I don't know if I love you that much. <laughs> just, oh, man, mosquitoes, and then getting malaria and all the times that they're sick and all the things that are going on. And then this guy, he, he shot something like 55 lions, not out of sport, but out of defense, self-defense. 
I mean, he's out there with another missionary. They're going somewhere. And, and uh, you know, they, they see this, this animal out there. And then all of a sudden, the one missionary, this particular one, ends up seeing this lion. And he's heading right for the other guy. You know, it's like just right there. And the lion is, if he knew the man was there, he wouldn't have gone after the animal. Easy prey. What happens? Talk about crazy. That lion leaps right over that other missionary to go after that animal. Could have just watched the lion. Man, how much you love Jesus. <laughs> how much you love Jesus. You know, we can pat ourselves on the back thinking we're so noble and so great a Christian, and then, oh God, you want me to deal with mosquitoes? You know, or snow. Snow. Want to read a wild man? Victor Plymeyer. Man, that guy was wild man. Early Pentecostal, went in Tibet. Man, that guy's life. Just, you know, you look at that and you go, God, do I even know you? Am I even a saved man? Do I even know what salvation is? Do I even know what it is to love you when you look at people that fall in love with Jesus? You see, that's what God wants to do with the saints in this church. Wants to make them radicals that love him so much it's burning white hot. And if he says, I want you to go to Tibet, and you'll go in there and deal with the blizzards and the snow, or you'll go to the jungles and deal with the mosquitoes and lions, whatever it is that you go wherever he calls you, because you have this love burning in you so hot for him that's helping you to love others selflessly that you want to give yourself away so that others might know him. You see, that's what he's out after, because that's what comes out of the greatest commandment, people that are on fire for Christ. And why aren't we on fire for Christ? Because we don't love him like we think we do. And if we did, we might just be turning the world upside down. Father, we come before you now in the precious, wonderful name of Jesus. Lord, the greatest and first commandment is absolutely astounding, Lord. You didn't call us to swim the widest ocean, to climb the highest mountain, to try and earn something with you. You went to us and says, love me with everything that's inside of you. And yet, Lord, we fight that. We fight it. We fight it again and again. Even as Christians, we fight it because we're afraid of what it might do and what it might direct us to do. Yet, Lord, everything that is aching in our heart is ultimately aching in knowing that we need to love you with all that's within us, O oh God. It is the ache that's inside of our hearts. Lord, those who feel it at times of worship where there's something rising up, it's actually this love that should be so fixed upon him that we just feel it. And Lord, it can be like this pleasing pain as David Brainerd referred to it. And it makes our soul to press after God, Lord. We need that in our lives more and more where we feel that holy ache Lord, where we are fully satisfied in you, but yet longing to know you more and more that presses us in deeper and deeper, oh God. Lord, what the world needs can only come through a church that loves you supremely. We can't give them what they need through the natural man. We can only give them what they need through you, Jesus. And we can only get from you what we need to give to them if we are willing to love you more than self, more than this world, more than any idol that we'd want to raise up and to learn from loving you how to begin to love like you selflessly and sacrificially. God, set 
us ablaze. Make us radicals in loving you, Jesus. And Lord, may we then have the courage to see what comes out of that. Jesus, 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 Jesus. For anyone here that you're not walking with Jesus, here's the reality. Let me make it very, very simple. You have loved yourself more than anyone or anything. That is what's ruled your life. That's what's defined you. And God is offering you something here. Something you can't get by yourself. You can't be a Christian through your own strength, your own desires, your own wants. You can't do it. But he's offering you a gift of a new heart and a new mind that you might begin to love him like you've never loved him. To know this God that you know about but that you are not right with. What will keep you from the place of running to him right now? What will keep you from the place of throwing yourself at his feet and say, Jesus, I don't love you. I don't know how to love you. Help me. Help me, God. I'm so weary of the self-love. It has caused me so much pain and suffering and sorrow, God. I'm weary of it. Jesus, how do I love you? And if you will come and throw yourself at his feet, he has promised that he will give you a new heart and a new mind. That if you will truly surrender yourself to Christ, something will change inside of you so deep and so profound that you will not be the same person you were. You'll not be finished. There's this process we still have to go through until we breathe our last, but you'll be on that journey now. You will now be a follower of Messiah, of the Christ. You'll now be a follower of him. And you will then have the joy of the pursuit of this God that calls you deeper and deeper and deeper into himself. And so if you're not right with Jesus, let me ask a very simple question. What will keep you from this altar today? Whatever would keep you from this altar, what will ever keep you from running to Jesus this morning is the God you serve. And I hope if you think about that, it scares you to pieces. Because I guarantee you on the day that you die, the God that you have right now will not be able to save you. But if you'll come and throw yourself at his feet, there is a God that can save and does save and will save if you will come running to him. Would everybody please stand? If you're not right with Jesus and you want to get right, that's really the nitty-gritty there. You, you may not even know how to get right, that's all right, but you're just sick of what you are, you're sick of where you've been, sick of what you've done, and you want to come home to Jesus. I want you to come down to this altar right now. I want you to walk forward right now. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for that. Thank you for seeking after us when we <clears throat> had no desire for you when we didn't want you when we were immersed in our own sin and rebellion when our own sorrow and pain consumed us and we could see nothing else thank you that you loved us and thank you that that love brought action that you pursued us 
Lord, what should we offer you now in return for all that you have done for us? This first and greatest commandment, to love you supremely, Jesus. Take us there, help us, mature in this, O oh God. Let this be mindful of us through the week, O oh God. Let it become the goal of our life, not just as we think of it today, but Lord, what will take us through the rest of the years that we journey in this planet, O oh God. It will be full and complete and glorious when we see you face to face, Jesus. Our wandering hearts will be gone, O oh God, then. Until that time, we need to keep pressing in and making you the prize of all prizes, Lord. Bless your people here. In Jesus' name.